in any case, I had this thought, what if Jesus and his family were rejected asylum? And, I mean, I'm just seeing the parallels to our society today. Yeah. How many Jesuses are rejected at the border, mm. rejected of their asylum pleas, and sent back to a proverbial king who is killing their people only to die? Hey, welcome to Barefoot to a Mace. This is Char. This is Byron. We're glad you're back with us. It's good to have you. We're well on our way. <laughs> Episode number 10. We're super excited. So, what are, we, what are we talking about tonight, Char? Well, as we are recording here tonight, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah, it is. And our good friends over at the No Small Thing podcast, shout out Mace and Scott and their guest, Maddie. Uh, are recording about Advent from the experiential aspect. Maddie has a lot of liturgy and practice in his experience with Advent, and I felt that it would be fun for us to take a more theological approach to Advent. I love it. So, what is... Go ahead. Well, Advent as, I mean, I guess question, Advent as like the liturgical season, Advent as the, like, the spiritual moment of waiting for Christmas or Jesus or what? So what does Advent mean to you? I think we can take a chance to dive into all of that. Great. Right now we are in the liturgical season of Advent, and so I think it makes sense to start there. Okay. But to recognize what it is that we're celebrating. Yeah. I think a lot of us, especially growing up in the church, can go through these motions and not necessarily know what it means. I know for myself, growing up, my family would usually read the Advent story in Luke. We would read it little bit by bit as we follow the wise men, as they follow the star of Bethlehem and go find Jesus. Pretty sure that was Luke think it might not be. The only reason is because uh, for my speech class for... Um, Luke and Matthew for both have uh, an Advent story, I believe. Yeah. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through... Or, yeah, two verse 1 starts, um, In those days Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the blah 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 should be taxed and Quirinius and blah blah blah. And then verse 8 starts with... Um, and there were shepherds in the field, and angels showed up to them. And it ends at verse 20 with, And they went to go visit the baby lying in the manger, and Mary was impressed. And they went away because all the stuff had happened. So then it might go into three wise men after that, but I think it's probably Matthew. Good point. Good the question. synoptics are difficult. This is one of the things I want to get out of seminary. It's like, a, yes, I want to know what's in Matthew that's not in Luke and that's in John that's not in the others. Yeah, I think to my understanding, if I recall back to my childhood, we were probably reading from both of them in a little strange conglomeration. Yeah, like a gospel harmony type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But I did have a sense of the story, but it was still communicated as a child, to a child. Mm -hmm. You know, and as much as a child can understand. And so I, that's one of the fun things growing up that you learn more and more if you are interested, if you lean in. And it helps to know what it is that we're celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just passed Thanksgiving this last Thursday, and it helps to know the history. Yes, it does. So, yeah, so I think that's where I'd like to start, to take a little dive into what is this Advent thing that we're talking about? Well, real quick, we're talking about a liturgical season of four weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, Christmas in the Christian tradition is celebrated on... December 25th or December 24th, if you're Swedish like myself, we have wow. Christmas Eve as our celebration. I got it. But this would not have been the time when Jesus actually was born. No, heck no. Because the shepherds wouldn't have been out in the middle of the winter. Baby sheep can't handle winter weather. Also, they're not born. The cold. <laughs> <laughs> also, they're not born in the winter. So yeah, good point. So we know that the Christmas date actually lines up 
with what was a pre-existing pagan holiday. Now, I say pain, in saying pagan, I'm simply referring to another religious practice that was not Christian. Or a number of religious practices. It, yes, so paganism often is referred to the Wiccan religions, but I think pagan is also a word that has been extended to yes. anything that is not Christian from the Christian perspective, that yeah. they look upon other things and say, oh, that pagan religion even yeah, well, there's even Wiccan. Isn't there a Roman holiday called Saturnalia or something that's celebrated around this time? Yeah, exactly. And so for the budding... No, no, actually, hold on. This wasn't the early church that celebrated it because they thought that Jesus was coming right back. They had no reason to celebrate. It was, con a, it was a Constantine, right? Question. Constantine, I think, was the one who instituted Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ, and chose it on a date that was already a date that was celebrated by the Roman people. That's my understanding. Fascinating. Because I know... I always just guessed that, like, the institution of Christmas was, like, a early Middle Ages type of thing. Whoa. You thought it was that late? I thought it was pretty late. Um, at least in terms of the traditions, right? Because we have a very um, Germanicized, you know, putting, like, putting Chris, like Christmas trees yeah. is kind of a thing even like when was saint nick patron saint of bethlehem by the way <laughs> um right like saint nicholas did his stuff within the time frame of the earliest church i don't even know exactly how he got associated with christmas that would be gifts. something really interesting to look into yeah he gave gifts anyway but still why well i guess yeah the gifts of the wise men coming forth with gold frankincense and myrrh yeah so that would make sense then. I mean, we've since turned into a very capitalist holiday, which is in large part why I want to unpack it. Yes. Because, haha, unpack. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I have a real contention with, that we take what are actually some theologically and spiritually very significant moments, mm -hmm. which are worth acknowledging, they're worth celebrating. Yeah. And we strip them of their meaning by consumerizing them by making them this capitalist holiday where we buy stuff yeah and it almost becomes more about what we get rather than what we give now they always say remember the tis the season to give or you know there's all sorts of slogans that they say but that's still their very wise and insidious methods of justifying from a moral perspective sure the extreme consumption that they i mean these businesses, multinational businesses, get so much money out of these holidays. <laughs> it's ridiculous. This is their salvation moment. <laughs> oh, boy. That's gross. Anyway, so, these four weeks leading up to Advent, do they have any biblical precedent? Do we have a reason for the four weeks when we look at these biblical stories? Not that I know of. Among the biggest differences in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the the story of the origin of Jesus is actually one of the least consistent parts, hmm. right? Like one of them just starts with a genealogy straight up. Another one Matthew, starts, yeah. yeah, another one starts um, with John. Um, I think that was John. <laughs> the Baptist? Does John the Baptist start with in the beginning? Oh yeah, oh. in the beginning was the word, and well, okay. John came preaching in the Mark. Sorry, I was making a joke because oh. of John. <laughs> You're right. Mark does start with John. Yeah. Make straight the way of the Lord. Voice cries in the wilderness. Who needs straight paths? Yeah. So like, it's probably Matthew and Luke that go into the Christmas story the most. The nativity story. I think those are the only two that do. Because I think yeah, Mark yeah. Mark ignores it. John goes straight to this like. Theological interpretation. Theological of incarnation. All of existence, basically. Oh what gosh, is the meaning yeah. of life? Go to John if you want some answers to that. So, yeah, we do get the. We like splice together this conglomeration based on taxes, based on Jesus' family line, based on like ge geography of going from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Egypt. Yeah, all of these questions so where I, he was, but I don't see what anything. caused him to leave or go there. <laughs> It's, it, there are some inconsistencies that people have tried to put together <laughs> in a way that is pretty complicated. It's, it's kind of comical in some ways. Um, but all that to say, I don't... I, I see in that a motivation to fulfill prophecy. I don't see that... I don't see anywhere this, like, quadruple or this four-part 
split, that would mean uh, a season of four weeks. Yeah. Interesting question. So anyway, these four weeks in the Christian liturgical tradition now stand for four Christian virtues of hope, love, joy, and peace. You're talking the candles. These like, are, I think they're the candles, but they're also symbolically of, of the weeks as they pass. Oh, and then the fifth one is the Christ candle. Qu fifth one is the Christ. Okay. So we're um, celebrating the incarnation of Christ, the birth of baby Jesus. Do we know why the the peripheral ones are white, but then is it the joy candle that's pink and then the Christ candle that's purple? Yes. And no, I don't know why. Because seems kind of gay to me. Maybe it is. Maybe it's gay. I was reminded with Scott listening to our podcast that I you, had... You I, can be more gay. I, I could be more gay. We are... We get to choose how we appeal to our audience, so go for it. Yep. Um, anyway. Pink candles are gay. Pink's just a beautiful color. No, I don't know why those are the case, but nonetheless, what we end up with, this term Advent... Sure. It is the understanding of something coming mm. there there is an advent of something meaning something is on the horizon and we are waiting for that thing so tis dawn the advent of the birth of baby jesus we have these four weeks of an awareness of that coming we prepare ourselves in mm -hmm. this waiting yeah and so in this space i wanted to think about the significance of the spiritual practice of waiting ah oh, i love patience is patience a virtue I think so. Why? Why is it good to wait? Um, because it doesn't demand that people do things on your time. I think it's a way of honoring other people. I tend to be an incredibly patient person. <laughs> you are. You're, <laughs> you're a very patient person. So it's, it's, it's decentering of the self, is that I, what you're saying? I think so. Yeah. Um, it also has the benefit of being just kind of tacitly mindful. Speak more to that. I really like that. Um, you just kind of get to, you know, if you're waiting in line, it's this karma kind of idea of like, if you, and in my own kind of weird interpretation of karma, I don't mean to appropriate any like other religion ideas, right? Like if you're in a hurry to get somewhere and you're anxious about it and you get caught in a red light, that red light is going to be more frustration to you than if you're just accepting things and like being peaceful about it. So patience begets peace. So it, yeah, to not be in a rush, to not be moving with an agenda, you have more appreciation of the moment for just being the moment it is. Yeah, you know, and you can use that moment for connection. You can use that moment for prayer. You can use that moment for whatever. Um, it turns it potentially into like a type of worship or at least not frustration. Yeah, so we have that aspect of stillness in the moment, presence in the moment, which I think is really profound. I think there's also something about waiting for something, waiting for something that isn't here yet, uh -huh. waiting with expectation, with eagerness. I know for myself as a child, it was the buildup that was always the most exciting part. <laughs> you know, you got, you see the packages under the Christmas tree, or you have this sense of this wonderfully fun holiday coming up. And every single day you're on the countdown. You're like, oh, it's 21 days left. Fascinating. It's 20 days left. We're coming up to would Christmas. You, would you juxtapose that with something like a surprise? Yeah, well, yeah, surprise wouldn't have any expectation. That's the definition of the surprise. So you wouldn't have a sense of waiting for a surprise. Now, you might be surprised by what you're expecting, by what you're waiting for. Yeah. But... To just be surprised by something doesn't necessitate that you weren't expecting it. Mm -hmm. What was behind your question of surprise? Um, I don't know. Just this idea of like two different types of parties. I was thinking back to that apocalypse idea where it's like if you know what you're expecting or if you like create an artificial end date for it, then you then you can be patient in that. You can be, you know, then you're less likely to worry about it. You're more likely to handle the revelation I wonder if there's a, a similar type of revelation with patience or advent or as opposed to like a surprise. I tend to not like, my brain went to surprise parties and I, I've never had a surprise party and I don't think I like surprise parties. Um, I don't like planning surprise parties. I don't like surprises in general. And 
I guess that makes sense if I'm very good at being patient. <laughs> I don't know if those are intention, right? Surprises can be a good thing. God, I think I see where you're going. You're you're trying to pin these ideas of I'm trying to balance expectation yeah. towards something that you and awaiting towards something that you are sensing versus the presence in the moment of not waiting, not expecting, yeah. but just being yeah. to where Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. I wouldn't personally put them at at heads with each other. I think that you can be patient and expecting in some ways if the expectation is long it demands an endurance of patience Mm -hmm. and perhaps your patience is refined by the pressure of expectation not someone's expectation on you but what you are expecting so if i have this wonderful like okay this was an example that i wanted to share sure I had a friend, his name's Connor, who recently got married. And I remember talking to him after he got engaged and celebrating with him this beautiful thing. And he was so excited to get married. And I shared with him this thought that while engagement as a season isn't biblically demanded or anything, there's there's no real significance that it needs to have. It, it does have meaning. It does have value. It's not just about, oh, you need to plan your big old wedding and that's going to take some time yeah i think there's also real beauty in sitting in the season of saying there's something good coming and so we are here in expectation in patience in and in preparation Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the third point for me is preparation what does it mean to prepare what are we preparing for how do we prepare why do we prepare now in a wedding context i think there's this potentially huge commitment of sharing your life indefinitely toward the end <laughs> until yes. death do us part with one other person, presuming, you know, yeah. however your context. That is a huge commitment that will dramatically shape the rest of your life. In many ways, it shapes your own identity. And so to be meaningful in entering into that, to be prepared, obviously you can't prepare for everything, mm-hmm. but to be in a state of saying, I have reconciled my past self that I'm leaving behind in order to step into this new space. I have had this limbo of, of sitting and waiting that I have used to accept and pass on my past self in order to step into this new self. Yeah. Two thoughts. You, you bring up this idea of new self and like when we're talking about Advent, like this this is one of the biggest points of the entire Christian calendar. And we're not just, you know, expecting this thing that we then get, right? We're expecting the advent of something that will literally change everything. Yeah, everything changes after that point. Yeah. But I think I, I wanted to like jump back. You kind of hinted at this wedding metaphor and there are biblical precedents for engagement. Um, this idea of like you get engaged or you even get married or something and then you're apart for a year well in biblical cases the man or whoever goes and builds a house Hmm. um to prepare you know this is the metaphor that jesus is using when he says i have to leave i'm preparing a house for you it's a marriage metaphor it's the same issue that david and jonathan (laughs) do when like saul like keeps jonathan away from david yeah um in this in this thing that could be uh, understood as uh, this kind of engagement period type of thing. Now, Saul probably wasn't down with this whole uh, arrangement that David and Jonathan might have had. <laughs> but uh, even uh, Leah and Rachel, Jacob, Israel's uh, wives, there's this there is this precedent for waiting and engagement and working in that time. Yeah, that is interesting. And it, it is towards, you know, usually that image is marriage, which is, yeah, something that complete, that profoundly changes your your life. Wouldn't you see that, specifically in the Jacob scenario, almost more of a dowry, though? That he's essentially working in order in his, to... In his case, yes. Yeah. Yeah, his case is a little bit weird, especially because his father-in-law Very tricked shrewd him. man, yeah. <laughs> Trying to weasel his way 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, those were just two points about, like, there are marriage metaphors that I think can go along with Advent and this pre-marriage period, as well as the, the severity of what it is we're expecting. Something that completely flips everything else around. And the expectation for the Jewish people was always a king. They weren't expecting a baby. <laughs> I mean, it would have had to start as a baby at some point. A baby king. <laughs> well, they, they did have kings as young as eight and probably younger, so yeah. that's not out of the day and age. But you never picture your king as a baby. You picture them as an adult. Well, and a warrior in some cases, yeah. Which is... I think why Jesus said a prophet is never welcomed in their hometown because they have seen you grow up. They've seen you oh, I see. crying and maybe they've, you know, switched your diapers and, and whatnot. They have this perspective of you that doesn't accommodate for the dramatic working of God in your life and through your life. For you to be a prophet, for you to be a king, it doesn't fit the bill of this little kid that I babysat for. I bet the mother would disagree, but for the most part, <laughs> yeah, I think I think moms can totally like make that shift. <laughs> be like, yes, my baby's a king, but you will always be my baby. Sure, sure. I know there's having a counterexample, a sentiment there. I mean, I think that that shock is still a very important part of the incarnation story. Yes. Not only was Jesus a baby born through a woman's womb, a human woman, but also this baby was a refugee. You know, he, regardless, let's, I like the Herod story more for its dynamism. Yeah. That King Herod was trying to stop this Messiah, this king, coming king, prophesied king from taking him out, mm -hmm. his political power. Um, because he was tied to Rome, the Roman Empire. And so he issued this decree to kill all of the newborns, the kids under two years old, just to make sure that he got Jesus killed. What a jerk. And so Jesus' family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, they flee to Egypt. Now, I imagine that the relationship between Israel and Egypt probably wasn't great. I don't have a lot of those details but there was some history. <laughs> Under the Romans, good question. I don't know. I feel like there'd be the Pax Romana, like Rome owned or controlled Alexandria, I think. Hmm. So I think Rome would have kept Egypt at bay. But wouldn't they have had to flee all the way outside of Roman? Would they have been able to? No, I think they just needed to flee, flee Herod. Okay. In any case, I had this thought, what if Jesus... And his family were rejected asylum. Despised. Rejected. And, I mean, I'm just seeing the parallels to our society today. Yeah. How many Jesuses are rejected at the border, mm. rejected of their asylum pleas, and sent back to a proverbial king who is killing their people only to die. And it's easier to justify it when we think you know, in the propaganda that these are drug dealers and rapists who are trying to come across our borders. But when it's your Messiah, when it's your savior of mm -hmm. your religion, what would have happened to our Jesus if he had been rejected and sent back? Would we have the faith that we have? Would we have the salvation that we believe in? Yeah. Oof. I mean... To tie, a, a, like, a modern social, and obviously not just modern, but uh, a, a long-standing human mode of suffering um, into the Advent story, Mary having an abortion, like, what would have happened in that case? In any case, we have this refugee child who is also born in what would now be Palestine mm -hmm. in a feeding trough for animals. Yes. We have all of these aspects of his identity that we would shun and despise today. 
you know, he was despised and rejected. And it is interesting to think about who is this Messiah that we're waiting on when we celebrate Advent. You know, we picture little baby Jesus. As the song goes, no crying he made. Boo. What the hell? What a bad interpretation. <laughs> That's a horrible interpretation. He was human. He was fully God, but fully human. He would have cried. Yep. He would have peed and pooped and all the things that a human does. Yep. And he would have cried. No baby doesn't cry. That's a very unhealthy sign. <laughs> <in a> baby. <laughs> yes. You don't parenting advice if your child, if your infant baby's not crying, something's wrong. If Princess Yue is anything to go by. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't let your child become a, the moon. This is... Find the moon. <laughs> parenting advice of the 21st century. Don't let your child become the moon. So, we have this human baby Jesus that the wise men were totally fine celebrating and honoring. They bowed down and brought these gifts worthy of a king. I remember seeing this funny comic that said if women had been the ones to show up, they would have brought actually like good gifts. <laughs> that, <laughs> Something useful that Mary could have used, exactly. <laughs> but there is symbolism to all these things. Yeah. Too much symbolism, right? Like, I don't know, we could get into this question of the mythology, the mythologizing of, like, Messiah birth stories. Yeah. Right? There's stories with about the birth of Siddhartha Gautama, or there's stories about, I, th I think there's stories about the birth of Muhammad um, that, like, deify mm. this human baby. And I, right, like, the, the idea of these foreign kings coming from, or the, sorry, rather, these foreign wise men coming from pretty far away with these very symbolic gifts. It's a pretty contrived story. Yeah. In some ways. I mean, so many biblical stories have direct parallels to other cultures. Oh, sure. You see that in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Actually, fun fact, it was only, so I believe it was the Ottomans who came in and sacked Jerusalem, and the Church of the Nativity had uh right above the door if you walk in and then look up and back uh there's this picture of the three wise men was um, it a selfie <laughs> yeah fun. i believe it's a mosaic and, a little out of focus you know two thousand years old <laughs> um but the 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 leader of the ottoman um army walked in and was like hey those are our people and they didn't destroy the most important church of christianity for that reason wow Maybe that's the reason that there are these parallels. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, we're grateful. Yeah. Thanks, Ottomans. You did something right. <laughs> you, you done good. baby Jesus, who I believe does not meet our expectations, did not meet their expectations then, and does not meet our expectations now. This was a Jesus who hung out with the sinners, the people that were marginalized both on a spiritual level, but also on the caste system. Mm -hmm. And we see that precedent from the beginning of his story. Like, he is someone who hangs out in feeding troughs, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. You know? A little unkosher. He's, he's very unkosher. Well, like, I don't know if you can say very unkosher because you have this idea of, like, Jesus needing to have been sinless or perfect, but he does break those rules. He breaks the yoke of the mishpat, the mitzvot, sorry. You know, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That if you follow the law that God has written on your heart, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, spirit, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. You know, he declared, well, I guess it was Peter later who declared, no, no, Jesus did, declared eating um, seafood clean. Was that? Seafood. I mean, there's the vision that Jesus presumably sends to Peter with the white sheet. 
of like, don't call anything that I have made unclean. But I don't think Jesus. No, I'm pretty directly... sure there's a passage. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a passage where uh, Jesus says something, and then it's like in the subtext, like, and henceforth Jesus like, <laughs> like declared these things clean. I'll, um... I'll find it later. But yeah, I do want to talk more about the idea, the theme of preparation. I do feel like that is an important part of Advent. Cool. It's a big question to know what we're preparing for. If Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, how do we prepare for that? And when you say Jesus doesn't meet our expectations now, you mean like we still have this I think glorified we st- idea of... I think we will never have a fully accurate idea of Jesus. I think we always have to leave room to be humbled. That our perspective of Jesus isn't complete. That we are caught up in our own ideas. We're caught up in our own values and desires of who we want Jesus to be. Even ideas that are really righteous, I think, when they become controlling so as to declare who Jesus is and ascertain and have this fixed idea of Jesus. And you're drawing a parallel between... Because I I feel like there's a difference between having the example to go by and that not fitting our expectations versus having expectations and having nothing to go by right like why were they expecting a king because the prophecies said king yeah why were they expecting a a warrior even because the prophecies said that right like i think there's a difference between having an expectation that is then shown versus retroactively like trying to shove jesus into a box that jesus doesn't fit in like once jesus exists i think it's a different type of expectation yes but will the second coming look like the first coming that's a really, 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 really great point. <laughs> you know, we have this prophecy for what Jesus' second coming will look like. And yeah, flaming swords for mouths, big battles. Coming Some people try horse. to put a lot of weight into what this prophecy means for our future. And the early church was very hesitant to even include Revelation in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It, was, it almost didn't make the cut. I think it was right there with Hebrews. Right on the edge of not making the cut. And Daniel Kais was telling me this, that the understanding was that it wasn't supposed to be used for ascribing doctrine. That even as it was included in the Bible, by the early practice. Sure. Because they, even they didn't know what it meant. (laughs) You know, and so to try to fix our idea of Jesus, yes, we, Jesus came in the flesh, God in the bod. We have little baby Jesus grows up, lives life to 33 or whatever. Mm-hmm. We have testament from that that is powerful and it is incredibly valuable for guiding our understanding of Jesus and in that guiding our understanding of God. Very, very powerful, very important. And I think even there we need to be humble in how we hold those stories. There are a lot of scholars who question all of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels as being potentially written into Jesus's story as opposed to being things that Jesus actually said. There, there are very few passages of Jesus speaking where scholars agree this was definitely something Jesus said. Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> to quote uh, a teacher I had in undergrad, actually, who, who I took a Gospels Jesus class from, we have this idea, his professor, wish I remember the names, his professor said, yeah, we have these red letter Bibles. Mm-hmm. Really, it should be in a, in a light pink. You know, are we sure that Jesus said these words, the red letter Bibles being the ones that highlight the words that Jesus said in red? Um, there's the gospel of, there's the apocryphal gospel, the sayings gospel, um, that is just quotes of Jesus. And it might actually be the earliest gospel to have ever been hmm. written down. It wasn't canonized. The quote book? The quote book. Um, but yeah, there's this question of there seems to be enough agreement in the synoptics of Jesus seems to have said this thing, but is that because the tradition was already around to establish that the this is the narrative that we remember, not necessarily the actual thing that happened. So Yeah, and as the gospel writers were writing their gospels, they were taking source from 
something. I mean, the specific mm-hmm. specificity of how similar yeah. some passages are, there's no way that that was just out of someone's memory. Sure. They're, they're clearly sourcing to something else now. One argument is that there was a Q source, that there was an additional source that we don't have access to that preceded Mark. Mark was the main, the first one that came based off that, and I think Luke was based off of Mark and this other source, and there's other, like, a whole little tree of how they consider yeah, it. Yeah, it's a whole area of study. But when you base it off something else, you know, you are relying on the veracity of that source. Mm-hmm as opposed to just your own experiences. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to think about John, who is theoretically one of Jesus' apostles, having the least similarities to the synoptic Gospels. <laughs> now, I personally but think also, yeah. that's largely because of his intention, first of all, with his audience mm-hmm. of um, Gentiles and wanting to essentially evangelize, but also his extreme intent on theological interpretation and understanding as opposed to just stating the facts. Yeah, John is one of the most contrived Gospels, not in a negative way of, like, making it up, but, like, having an idea of what he's saying. This happened for this reason. Yeah. It was, and it he, was so that this... Yeah, and, I mean, all of the Gospels kind of do this, this intentional structuring. It's not like someone sat down. You don't sit down and write a poem or a book in one try. You edit it. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's wild to think of by itself, um, but but yeah, okay. So then your your point about like red letters, what My, Jesus actually said, we we must value the Jesus of history, the value the Jesus of the Bible, as shaping our understanding mm. of Jesus and of God. But we also must be open to being to only holding a kernel of the truth. You know, that there there is more out there that we have yet to find. Sure. And I think tying it back to the theme of Advent and waiting and preparation, Advent is a really powerful season that gives us a chance to prepare our hearts in expectation for something. And I think it's important that that expectation isn't limited to our picture of cute baby Jesus. You know, we're not waiting for presents under the Christmas tree. We're not waiting for even little Jesus in a manger. Jesus already came. Sure. We can honor that and recognize that tradition. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something really powerful to say we are waiting for that very same God who came incarnate in baby Jesus to break into our lives. To me, that's the significance of Advent. Are you talking eschatologically end of time, like into history, into I'm talking in the present again? moment. You should, so you're talking kingdom-wise? Are you talking, like, personally? Just... Personally and societally, that, that God is breaking in. And we might not have as potent an image as an, a human being, being the embodiment of all of God's self in that same way. But we do have a world and a humanity that God is breaking into. Yeah. That light is piercing through. And when we take a season to acknowledge this one moment of very evident piercing of that light, Mm -hmm. I hope that it is also preparing us to see that light piercing through in other ways. That same preparation is opening us up to the way that God is breaking in in the mundane, the way that God is breaking in in your daily life. So you're, you're extending this this kind of classic, little bit cheesy metaphor of like, it's always it can always be Christmas time in your heart. Um, and not, not this like, I mean, I don't want to say like secular view, but this non-intrinsically Christian view of, uh, like, oh, it's a season for love and joy and giving and, and peace and grace and stuff. You're talking very much this, this idea of the coming of Christ is not a one-time thing in the past or even in the hopeful future, but in the present. And always in the present, yes. 
as Hania likes to say, we can't take a day or a month or a moment to hold something because that limits it in our minds to that day. So one day of Thanksgiving, for example, well, does sure. that mean you're not thankful every other day? Now, where I would disagree with her, because I do value that idea that we mm -hmm. can certainly become pigeonholed in that way. Yeah. I think that having intentional set apart days for that actually helps remind us, yeah. oh, right, this is something that is always valuable in the way that a Sabbath isn't to say that every other day should be hellish rat race. <laughs> no amount of And we take rest. one day where we're like, okay, this is our rest day so that we can go back to that hellish rat race. No, it's, <laughs> it's posturing you to a lifestyle and an appreciation of life that says, hey, rest is how you were designed. Yeah. You were designed to be in tune with your body, in tune with the world around you, and to exist and just be and enjoy your mm -hmm. being. Mm -hmm. You are not a human doing, you are a human being. I feel like that is, we should have a podcast on, on Sabbath sometime, an episode on Sabbath. But in the meantime, that's what I understand Sabbath to be, that it recenters us on being human beings, not human doings. And so a season of Advent in sure. the same way is posturing ourselves to an awareness of God breaking through, not just in one day in history, mm -hmm. but in every single day, in every single moment. Yeah, that uh, the recognition on a specific time or a specific season even doesn't limit our ability to recognize, if, if we're mature people, does not limit our ability to recognize it at other times. For instance, this idea of like, we're not technically doing much in grad school that that is completely inaccessible at other times of our lives. I could always read Niebuhr. I could always read <laughs> C.S. Lewis. I yeah. could always read um, Calvin and, and Abelard and all of these people. It's the, you know, but as we learned this week with Thanksgiving, we do nothing if there's no schedule handed to us. Yeah, so really, really yeah. the only thing we're doing um, in grad school is paying people, and luckily we both have good scholarships, but paying people to tell us do your work when to do stuff. <laughs> and how to do it, too. Sure, and, and yeah, there's there's guidance there, and I don't want to minimize the relational aspect, but that's, that's I, I agree with you, that's the, the point of a season, or the, the benefit of a season. Yeah. Byron, how do you take this season of Advent? How do you take specifically the idea of waiting? But you can go elsewhere. Yeah, I like I like the idea of a preparatory moment before a big, or a preparatory time season before a big thing. Um, I love, I love Lent far more. I like, like, Ash Wednesday and Lent and Easter a little bit more than... How very Enneagram 4 of you. <laughs> the moody seasons. The moody season. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't raised terribly liturgically. I, I've been raised across the board with, like, you know, we, we did Orthodox Christmas sometime growing up in the in Bethlehem. My sister in Ethiopia does Orthodox celebrations. Um, anyway, so the four weeks specifically have never really meant anything to me. It's just four it's four names for four particular weeks in the calendar to just fill up space. Um, <laughs> I mean, especially at UPC. Um, Stat, right, we need names. What are we going to call them? Well, Presbyterians, right? They just, like, light a candle and, like, maybe preach a sermon based on a theme. But Classic Presbyterian. <laughs> I, and I don't know. I, I missed church this morning, so I don't know what my new church, what their Advent season is like, but that's all online anyway. So, I mean... The idea of Advent has always meant more to me than the season of Advent. Mm. So I'm trying to think. Advent seems to me like less of this... I think Advent needs to have this preparatory thing in order to make it meaningful or help it be meaningful, help us to understand its meaning. But Advent itself to me just means the moment... It's, it's a very similar word in my mind to Revelation. Advent is that moment of arrival. Mm. To me, the word Advent... The season of Advent implies this, like, kind of waiting for the arrival of something, but, like, the advent of artificial intelligence, it, to me, it doesn't imply, like, the It's waiting. not the dawning, but it's the moment. It, it, is, it is the dawning, not the anticipation. Yeah. Now, I think if you know, the, the helpful thing about Advent is that it does, and this is back a little bit to this planning thing, if you know what it is that's dawning, or you know that something is dawning, then you can prepare for it. You know, so I, I've had, I've had meaningful 
Christmas liturgical experiences. It tends to be more of a family. It tends to be a very family-related thing. I don't know. I don't know if I have particular attachments to the idea of Advent. Now, the incarnation of a baby Jesus <laughs> is something that I like, and we've already talked. We've already talked Christology, and obviously we can come back to those things. the The moment of Christmas, the Nativity, the idea of God in a womb, the idea of God crying, the idea of God busting forth through a vagina is like mind blasting and beautiful. Yeah. And that has that strikes me more than, you know, these kind of ethereal ideas of hope and joy and, <laughs> and faith. Yeah. And love or whatever the four candles are. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question. Yeah. Lean more into the birthing of Jesus, the the womb. Uh, uh, I mean, for Christology, it just, we've, again, we've already talked about this, but it has just enormous implications. Yeah. There aren't very many religions I can think of that do, you know, not, not only is Christianity unique in the way that it does the death of our primary deity, of our only deity, I guess. Primary... <laughs> Well, okay, I mean, primary in the... In we the got another like, one up in that. Well, we're, com comparative we're to other religions. <laughs> we got our bases covered. Um, comparative to other religions, right? Like, if Shiva were to die, I think Shiva is like a primary deity. I don't, I don't know. Uh, if, I mean, I guess Odin dies at some point in the, myth, in the mythological... Yeah. Anyway, Christianity is unique in having the monotheistic hero be the one to take the burden of death. Sure, but it's also unique in... I don't think it's unique in the way of, like, having the god be incarnated into an avatar. There's obviously that idea in, like, Hercules and... Those are, like, demigods, right? Sure, the, but that's that's kind of the point I'm making, is to have the primary god be yeah. the one that is incarnated and so vulnerable and fleshy and all of that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a beautiful idea. I like the idea of creation bursting forth as the mother groans in the pains of childbirth. We have that image in the Bible mm -hmm. that God is doing something new and nature is crying out like a mother in labor. And then to see that turned on its head and it's no longer creator in this moment who is implementing that, but being the one born. Mm-hmm. I think there's something really powerful about that. It's very cyclical. It is very beautiful. And I think it's very endearing, empowering. It's a lot of trust that God puts in their creation to be able to, to like, hold Yeah, do you divinity? think it's possible that baby Jesus could have had any, like, deformities or something in the womb? <sighs> this gets into, like, a in my mind, this gets into just a huge kind of big question of, like, what is a deformity? What is a perfect human? Right? I was thinking about this with yeah. Jewish sacrificial practices, right? Like, the, the high priest or, you know, no one was allowed, you know, if someone had an issue of blood or um, they had, like, sat where a woman sat on her period, like, the previous day, like, they wouldn't be allowed into the temple. They'd be unclean. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, like, what if the high priest on the holy, on, on Yom Kippur, like, fell down and scraped his knee? Oops. Like... He's the only person allowed in, in, and now he can't go in. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he's the only person. Well, like, would they just quickly... Get a new high priest? <laughs> you know, Quick, yeah. get in the reserve. Um, I don't know, something like that. But this question of, you need a spotless lamb. Okay, well, I have, like, as, on a personal note, I have freckles, like, all over my arms and, and neck and stuff. And, yeah. Like, what is a perfect human? And... This gets into, like, beautyism, something that you like to talk about. Mm -hmm. But there's there's a, there's uh, presentations, like, accounts of Jesus being this short, kind of hunchback, unibrow, ugly dude. I mean, yeah, it's... If we're going to tie the prophecy of Isaiah 53 to Jesus, which, in the context of the Israelites, it would have presumably been understood to be Hezekiah, but I think there is value that a prophecy... Um, I, the, the Isaiah prophecies were post-Hezekiah, so it was something else that was pointing to Hezekiah. Got it. The Isaiah prophecy... 53 was still... 
Okay, maybe we don't know who is, but it, yeah, you're talking about the servant. Um, yeah, the servant so poems there are these servant in poems in Isaiah toward the end of Isaiah, and the question is, who are they referring to? And they could be just Jesus, or there could be someone earlier. It could be Israel as a nation. It there is be... one reference to Israel as a nation in one of the servant poems. That's the most reasonable. I mean, according to so we had this big assignment just like a week before Thanksgiving, and it was kind of this question of like, what are like think about the servant poems. Um, and who do they apply to? And the most reasonable, a couple of our, uh, author people said the most reasonable interpretation is a personification of Israel as a nation, but it also could have been Cyrus the Great. It also could have been a bunch of people. And that doesn't mean that it isn't still Jesus. That's the thing that I find as meaningful is that, yeah. There's nothing in the Bible, first of all, that says a prophecy can't be fulfilled twice. <laughs> and furthermore, that imagery was very much meaningful in the narrative and story of Jesus. And so to depict and describe what yeah. it was that Jesus was fulfilling, yeah. we can look to those old prophecies and still find the same meaning, even if there was someone who came earlier. Yeah. So, yeah. in any case... And the Gospel writers certainly used it. Yeah, so Isaiah 53 talks about how the servant is one who was despised and rejected by mankind and was not one of good looks. There's this direct yeah, kind of specifically says to that. his appearance, so to their appearance. Yeah, there's that reason. There's also, I don't know if it's Josephus or some like contemporaneous person who identifies, I think specifically like the jesus who died on the cross as this kind of like short ugly dude so there's reason there's prophetic reason to think that jesus could have been ugly there's uh historical reason to think jesus might have been ugly so i don't know anyway just this that might make some of us uncomfortable and i'm curious why because it makes no difference to our salvation it makes no difference to our relationship with god if anything it's a blessing i'm with you for God to say that you are equally valuable and equally good, even in your societal lack of beauty. Yeah. Yeah, among others. I mean, is it just another empathetic way of Jesus identifying with the marginalized? The marginalized, or, yeah. yeah. But yeah, this question of what does a perfect human look like? And. Yeah. Jesus, so there's a, there's a verse, I think, in Deuteronomy, maybe Leviticus, that says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would qualify, you know, being crucified would qualify as that. Now, cursed, does that mean sinful? Does that mean... It sucks. It, I mean, yeah, does it just mean, who knows? It sucks to hang on a tree. It sucks to hang on a tree. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that blesses sin by doing... In contrast, when Jesus says... Blessed are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit, depending on if you're using Matthew or Luke. Uh, Matthew in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because his focus was much more on uh, Jesus as king following the Davidic line. And so mm-hmm. the, the lineage and all this messianic language is very much more his focus, whereas Luke had much more of a temporal justice orientation to his gospel. So we see these parallels, but distinct differences in them. In any case, though, this yeah. word blessed likely means happy. Happy are those. <laughs> yes. Happy are the poor, for they shall be comforted. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily that they have some spiritual... Compensation or blessing. Sanctity, sure. any, you know, special blessing to them in that regard. Yeah. But simply, they are. They shall be happy because God shall upend and flip these yeah. kingdoms on their head. Yeah. Anyway, going back then to Jesus, the... When I said deformity, what I mean is something that would inhibit his ability to fulfill his ministry. So what if Mary had been drinking alcohol and he had developed fetal alcohol syndrome? Mm -hmm. Is that something that God would have passively sat by and allowed? Such a difficult question. I think that gets on... Oh boy. Yeah, or or if he had been born with microcephaly or something, that yeah. would have been debilitating to his cognitive capacity to 
speak words. Um, I mean, not, not only, right, like, if Jesus had been deformed, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. Like, if he had been missing a leg or something. Yeah. I mean, ugh, I want to do... I was thinking of doing um, a podcast on the development of the ideas of hell or whatever, but actually, this is making me think, I want to do a podcast on the, the prospect of whether or not Jesus was gay. Well... <laughs> The necessity of certain identities of Jesus, because another one that Hanil loves to talk about was what if Jesus was a woman or what if Jesus was intersex? Yeah. And I think these questions are really important to ask because in the similar manner, if Jesus didn't have a leg, wouldn't be led into the temple. If Jesus had been a woman, her testimony would have been invalid to the yeah. culture. Yeah. Only if people had known about it, right? Like if she was... A Mulan style kind of... <laughs> sure. Be a man. <laughs> you must be. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think all of this gets back to just this question of expectation. Yeah. And I loved the... Way to tie it in there. <laughs> well, I, I loved that you were tying it to this eschatology, this idea of by what, by what right do we look at, you know, Revelation, any sort of prophecy of what we are expecting Jesus to come back like. Mm-hmm given how much Jesus subverted expectations in his first incarnation or his his coming. I do often think about that prayer of come Lord quickly. Ugh, and there are times that it. in our world, it feels like, oh, I just wish Jesus would come back right now. Yeah. And what does that mean? What am I waiting for how will my expectations be upended i mean you know we referenced earlier amos 5 in a separate episode but there was this understanding that the israelite people had of who god was and more specifically god's unconditional preference to their side that god was always going to be on their side and amos was chastising them Mm. rebuking them and saying god is not on your side you must be on god's side (laughs) And so if we are waiting for the coming of Christ again, what does that mean for who we're waiting for and how, like, should we actually wait for Jesus to come back or should we be grateful that Jesus hasn't come back, you know? (laughs) Given the state of the church. Yeah, given the state of the church, given the state of our own lives and our own relationship with humanity and with ourselves. You know, it might be a blessing that we have time to figure some of this stuff out hmm. 2000 years is quite a time <laughs> it's quite a lot of time and yet here we are and i think about each passing year and how much i've learned and grown mm-hmm. and how much i still have yet to learn and grow and i don't want to use fix because as an enneagram one that's my <laughs> condition is that I try to fix myself, but there are aspects of myself that I know can find greater healing. Yeah. So how do I wait in a way that actually grounds me in the present moment, in a patience that is appreciating of the, of the moment that we're in? Tying it back to that first thing that you said, Byron. We only have this moment. Hey, you all, I'm really grateful that you've been listening to our podcast. We love you. We love you a lot. We definitely started this as a way for us to process and relish this dialogue, this rich dialogue of diving into ideas about God and our world. And we wanted to have it open to the community, but the fact that you're here and listening, it means a lot to me. I mean, we... I'm saying this to you now as we just set up our website and we got our podcast distributed onto Spotify and all these other Google Play, all these other services. Some are still coming up, but to see the numbers of people viewing and viewing from some very strange places like England. I have someone in England and Mexico. Someone in Mexico is listening to us. It's just wild to know that you're here with us. And I feel that in a very beautiful way. So I just want to say thank you for listening to Barefoot to Emmaus. And let me end with this blessing. 
May you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace. Thank you.